Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me for another journey through space and time. Uh, before we get started, I want to say a big thank you, as always, to everyone who has signed up to my Patreon site. It's the support that makes possible all of the other podcasting that Paul and I do. So so thank you, all of those who have gone to Patreon, uh, found me and signed up. If you're not a member yet and you want to join patreon.com, go there, look for me by name, Neil Oliver, uh, and follow the follow the instructions. You have to part with a bit of cash on a monthly basis, or it's a bit cheaper if you sign up for the year. Uh, and you, you become part of the family. An ever-growing community, an ever-growing family of like-minded thinkers. There's a vodcast every week. There's questions. There's competitions, and so on. More than anything else, it's a it's a community of free-thinking time travelers, uh, and there's obviously connections are made between, and ideas are shared. And it's not all just coming from me. There's all sorts of ideas being generated within the community and, and shared among the community. So it's growing all the time. Okay, enough of the advertising. It's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off across the beautiful, wine-dark Aegean Sea. Uh, Ancient Greece it is for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Before man was war waited for him, the ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. With a dark, threatening empire on their border, a league of states is formed for security and protection. Decades of peace and prosperity lead to complacency and jealousy. And once more, war rears its head. Fearsome warriors, the old gunslingers, go up against an upstart on the make. Against this boiling backdrop of internecine war and conflict, art and architecture, literacy and democracy, and political thought all flourished, developments that helped define the world we live in today. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning Neil. In the last episode we watched as one of the world's great philosophers, the king of cussedness as you called him, was executed. Where are we this week? 
Hi Paul, we're staying in ancient Greece uh, because what happened here is vital to the human story. It's unavoidable. The strides made by the folk living on this little peninsula, jutting out into the Aegean Sea with its collection of beautiful little islands, is simply profound. But as is always the case in this story, it wasn't all peace and love. This week we're marching with Sparta's fearsome hoplites as they go head-to-head with Athens in the Peloponnesian War. Ancient Greece. More of that little thumb of territory that sticks out into the Aegean and then it's dotted around with the Peloponnesian islands. Small. There's just no getting away from the fact that you're dealing with a small bit of territory, really, but from which so much else sprang. It was the tiny acorn, I suppose, from which the mighty oak tree of Greece sprang. The way that ancient Greece casts its shadow, not a bad shadow, not a dark shadow, the way it shelters and creates a space much larger than seems feasible. We talk all the time, and in other areas, you and I talk together about the way in which the past and the present mirror one another, or we find reminders of the one in the other, and we we talk about that so much, and this one in particular has that running through it. Much of what happens at at this point in the story of Greece reverberates. There's a, a line that we've often repeated, it's usually attributed to Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat but it rhymes which is a very effective way of thinking about it. You know, no one's suggesting that events replay hundreds or thousands of years later exactly, because, of course, they can't, but they rhyme. There's just no denying sometimes that a pattern of events seems to have many meaningful similarities with another pattern of events. And that's what we'll get to eventually. That's what will hopefully come out of this moment in the story of the world. We've dealt previously with Thermopylae, that glorious last stand by Leonidas and his 300 Spartans. They were hugely outnumbered by a Persian force. They stood there and and fought to the end long enough that it enabled the city-state of Athens, operating separately and in another part of Greece, to ready itself to try and deal with the Persians. And so they did. There were then luminous victories for the Athenians at Salamis, at Plataea and at Mycale, a succession of victories which flung Persia and the Persian Empire out of Greek territory for lifetimes. They were, that was it. They were, they were dealt with. And In the aftermath of those victories, the Athenians, quite reasonably, were determined to keep the momentum going. Persia had been driven, been pushed back behind the line whence it had come, but they were still there. You know, Persia was still a big looming presence. And the Athenians quite rightly said, look, we can't can't drop our guard here. We can't just pretend that everything's, you know, going back to some kind of normal. So they, they encouraged as many as possible, because we've discussed before the way in which Greece wasn't like a nation state, it was all these separate independent city-states, all operating independently of one another, you know, sometimes cooperating, sometimes, you know, getting in each other's way and whatever. But the Athenians drove this attempt to pull as many as possible together. 
and it was centred around Delos, and so it became known as the Delian League. And it was, well, called, think about it in whatever terms you want, European Union, the United States of America. It was, it was an attempt to, to create a, a sense of unity out of many, one, e pluribus unum and all that, as the Americans have it. So the Delian League was supposed to be all these city-states cooperating for their greater good so that they could back each other up and, and hold Persia at bay. Because they've got the threat facing them. Yeah, I mean, P- Persia was there, and Persia wasn't going anywhere. Persia was always going to be looming around. It was like a big lion prowling around outside the stockade. You know, it was, it was still there, and everybody was still nervous about it. The Spartans, the city-state of the Spartans, they were always different. They, they thought differently. Than, they certainly thought differently than the Athenians. You know, we don't we don't know enough about all of the city states. There were hundreds of city states, and we know next to nothing about some of them. And we know we know quite a lot about Athens, and we know a, a, quite a lot about Sparta. And there's no way of knowing how typical either of those were of what was going on elsewhere. But Sparta was certainly different from Athens. It had a different way of looking at life and a different way of structuring its society. And as well as being different, the Spartans were in some respects indifferent. They don't really seem to have cared much or or had much empathy for others. And so they kind of drifted away, really, and let Athens get on with it. They let Athens run the show. Uh, And that that suited them for a while. And so the Delian League also set about encouraging territories in Asia that were under the Persian yoke, if you like, dominated by Persia. The, The Delian League encouraged them to throw it off come away from Persia and come under the umbrella, the protection of the Delian League. You know, it, it's impossible to, to think about these things without seeing parallels, as I say, history not repeating but rhyming. It's a bit like NATO and its relationship with Russia right at the moment. You know, they're kind of just, you know, what? come in with us. Don't, don't, have any, don't have anything more to do with, with Russia and remember how bad it was under the Soviet Union. Come with us, where it's all it's all bohemian and barefoot and free. There's a bit of there was a bit of that going on. So Sparta let them get on with it, but gradually, gradually, some irritations started to develop within the Delian League, and for various reasons. For example, some city states were rich, and other city states were relatively poor. And holding the Delian League together and and keeping all the ships and armaments ready for defence against imminent attack maybe from Persia. It, it, it all took money. And rich states got annoyed that they were having to spend their money for the common good and were thereby providing protection for poorer states that weren't offering up anything like as much money. Because they couldn't. In some cases they weren't offering up any money at all. And you know, that's a bit like America's relationship to NATO as well. You, you know how America, especially under Trump, got really, really annoyed about the fact that it was paying for Europe's defence. It was putting in all the money to NATO and and everybody else was benefiting from that. So again, a lot lot of those very modern quibbles were there in in the Delian League. Uh, There was also, it was well observed that a lot of money was being spent beautifying Athens itself. Big civil engineering works. Uh, On on top of the Acropolis, for example, you've got the Propylaea and the Parthenon, from whence comes the Elgin Marbles. So these spectacular 
buildings. This was happening all over Athens, and, and the neighbours noticed that, as well as running the Delian League, they, they seemed to be doing jolly well out of it in terms of their city becoming more and more spectacular. And here's another echo between, you know, between past and present. It all held up. The driving force, the intent was there as long as the generation remained alive who had actually experienced Persian aggression. Okay, so as long as there were people who had who had gone to war, who had been soldiers, or who'd fa- or whose fathers ha- had been soldiers who had fought Persia, that memory sustained. You know, a bit like the after the Second World War. You know, the, the generation that, that survived the Second World War here in Britain, and then their children very much held on to that memory of what the sacrifice of World War Two had been all about. The, the conquest over tyranny, you know, breaking up the Third Reich, you know, th- throwing off the Dark Empire. As long as there were people who remembered it directly or who had been raised by parents who experienced it, it held. The, the idea held. This is why this one is so, it's, it's so worth paying attention to because of the way it, it informs our present and might even give nods to things that might happen in the future. The alliances, it, the Delian League was a set of alliances that came after a massive war. So that's very similar to what happened in Europe after World War Two. You know, people there who, who emerged blinking and shell-shocked into peace and set about dealing with the... Di- Gracie, do you need out? So you've got all these alliances forming, taking shape. Thousands of years ago is the Delian League, but, but you can't help but see the similarities with the way states, nation-states in, in Europe g- gathered together in the aftermath of World War II to protect themselves, because what had, what had happened after World War II, a line had been drawn through Europe, the Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall and all of that, and so you had this looming threat behind a wall in Europe that everybody was anxious about. You know, The, the enemy had been Germany and the Nazis, but... With one thing and another, as things evolved very rapidly in the aftermath of war, it was the Soviets behind their wall that were the threat. So you've got that as well. Everything about the Delian League and the the ever-present Persia is reminiscent of what happened in Europe and between European countries. And also, obviously, European countries forged alliances with America. And you can interpret it different ways. In the the post-World War II scenario, is America Athens... You know, is it the democracy standing and uniting others against a militarised authoritarian regime? Soviet Union in the, in the 20th century, but obviously Persia would take that role. Or was, was Athens the bullying empire, forcing and demanding obedience from satellites? So was Athens more like taking on the role of the Soviets in the 20th century scenario? In any event, it's just it's just it's just very very fascinating to consider all the ways in which you can look at the aftermath of the Persian War, the rise of the Delian League, the relationships between the city states, and then this, this steadily growing antipathy between Athens and Sparta, and then you can fast forward thousands of years to the post World War Two Europe and all of the alliances that formed and all the irritations that started to kick off. It's just a very, very interesting situation. So, back into ancient Greece. 
Sparta let Athens get on with it for about 20 years. They just went off and did Spartan things. But then they let it be known that they were getting increasingly annoyed with the way that Athens was running things. The demands it was making, the idea that it had of itself, its apparent superiority over everybody else, the way it was aggrandising itself. And Sparta became a focus for the opponents. Other people within the Delian League who were similarly annoyed could see Sparta as a focus. And long story short, the whole thing descends into yet more war. So from about 431 BC to 404 BC, you have what is remembered as the Peloponnesian War. And it's between Sparta and Athens in simple terms. And the the Peloponnese is a geographical term describing wider, greater Greece, the islands and the rest of it. A key figure, or a figure who took part in it, was Thucydides. Thucydides was a fighting man, but he was also a proto-historian. Modern historians look back at Thucydides and particularly the book that is remembered as the history of the Peloponnesian War as one of the first, if not the first, examples of a scientific approach to history. He interviewed protagonists on both sides and he recorded events. He didn't call it the history of the Peloponnesian War, incidentally. It, It was called that later by others who interpreted his works. With, with periods of peace punctuated through it, Sparta and Athens were at war from 431 to 404. The challenge at that time was that nobody could afford, really, to keep a massive army in the field indefinitely. The resources just weren't there. They're all farmers. You know, ultimately, they're all, they're all depending on seeding, growing and harvesting crops. Otherwise, nobody's got anything to eat. So their lives are determined by maintaining their agriculture. And the reality was, it meant that Sparta... Sparta had the greatest land army in, the, in ancient Greece. And it, it was recognised... Everybody knew that Sparta was the, the old gunslinger, the, you know, the undefeated f- figure that many had, had taken on. But Sparta had always gunned them down in the straight fight. So that was that was the expectation. But Athens sat behind uh, fantastic defensive walls. The whole city was surrounded by essentially impregnable defences, impregnable to the military t- techniques of the day. And they also had a 200-yard-wide a, a defended corridor that ran from Athens, the city, down to their port. So they could, they could sustain themselves indefinitely. So every summer, the Spartans would arrive with their army, with the, with the, the hoplites that we've discussed before. Hoplites being, it's a word descriptive of uh, those who carry the gear for war. Hopla. So the hoplites. And the hoplites of Sparta had practised and trained from boyhood to operate as one. When you see like a murmuration of starlings, you know those incredible sequences that people sometimes film of thousands and thousands of starlings and they're all flying together in a great black cloud and they all just seem to move relative to one another so that they become as one so every summer the Spartan murmuration would arrive turning the land dark around Athens and they would besiege and fight and invite hostiles from Athens to come out and tackle them 
But this would only go on for about a month. Because Spartan civilizations, the Spartan city-state, was predicated upon an enslaved population called helots. Spartans did nothing. The Spartan elite did nothing. The men all were, they were all warriors. They were all in the army. And the Spartan women, the high-ranking women, all they did was try and produce as many boy children as they could with the help of their husbands to replace the army. All of the grunt work was done by helots. And helots were fellow Greeks. They were Greek people, but they were enslaved by the Spartans. The Spartan elite annually declared war on the helots in a kind of a ceremonial sense because it meant that at any given moment they could you know they could wipe out the helots if the helots didn't behave so in order to prosecute the Peloponnesian war most of the Spartan warriors had to leave the city behind go to Athens knowing that back home they've got this unsupervised bunch that are enslaved that don't like them <laughs> and might if enough time went by might get ideas so that the Spartan forces would only stay at Athens for maybe three weeks, no more than a month, any given summer. And the Athenians would just sit behind their city walls knowing that they couldn't really be hurt. So the whole thing was a stalemate, which was why the whole thing just ran year after year after year, because nobody, nobody could get anywhere, nobody could get the upper hand. They would just come together for a month every summer, butt heads, and then everybody went back to harvest the crops. So it was a, it was a hopeless situation. Come about 415 BC, you know, so after years of this, the Athenians come up with a plan that they think might break the deadlock. They look out at the wider world and they, they focus upon the port city of Syracuse on Sicily. It's the port city of the city-state of Corinth. So that's a, a rival, another city-state. It's very wealthy and being a port, it's got people coming and going, it's worth having. So the Athenians come up with a plan that they will sail to Sicily, conquer Syracuse, conquer Corinth, and take all of that wealth for their own. And this, the thinking goes, will give them the finances to hugely increase their, their fleet, hugely increase their fighting force, and this will give them the upper hand in the Peloponnesian War, and they'll finally be able to dominate and defeat Sparta. So off they go, 415. BC, and it is a disaster. It is an unmitigated disaster. They lose their entire fleet, half their army. The whole thing, it soaks up and uses up you know, vast amounts of Athenian wealth. It couldn't have gone any worse. Athens, in the aftermath of what they call the Sicilian expedition, limps on until 404, basically. But they're so damaged, so weakened by all that they've lost in the farce of the Sicilian expedition that they're ready to sue for peace with Sparta. And a deal is struck. Their walls, their defensive walls are destroyed. They're, they're taken apart so that Athens' defences are no more. And it had just been what, to some extent, everyone might have expected. Sparta was always recognised as the hard man of Greece. The guy in the pub that nobody took on. And yet again, one upstart after another had had enough to drink that they would have a go. In this instance, it was Athens. Athens had been the, the upstart force. But once again, they had been flattened by Sparta. But the whole thing was more complicated by the fact that 
as the years had gone on, during the decades of the Peloponnesian War, Sparta had quietly and privately been striking deals with Persia. Basically promising the return of those Asian territories that had come under the protection of the Delian League and away from Persia. Sparta basically said, you know, if you'll play ball with us, if you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours by encouraging or allowing those Asian states to go back to you. You can have that all back. And what happened in the aftermath of Spartan victory in the Peloponnesian War was gradually all this wheeling and dealing began to work against Sparta. Sparta's um, credibility began to get undermined. Athens rose again. Athens came back after a period of time. Athens' defences were rebuilt. In 387 BC, I mean, this is how long this is running. It's, It's decade after decade. In 387 BC, Sparta actually made peace with Persia and followed through and returned the states that had come under the Delian League. Persia reclaimed those states. Sparta was now loathed. The way Sparta had behaved so enraged and infuriated her former allies that they all shifted sides, they all backed away. Finally, in 371 BC at Leuctra, a battle took place between the Spartan hoplites and an alliance of Boeotians and Thebans, other city-states. And unbelievably, the Boeotians and the Theban force beat the Spartan hoplites completely, destroyed them. Nobody had ever thought that such a thing could happen, far less that they would live to see it. It was astonishing. It was a seismic event. The tectonic plates had shifted. And apart from anything else, because of all that had happened, Persia was back to where she had been before Thermopylae. All the ground that Persia had lost in the aftermath of Thermopylae and and Mycale and Salamis and Plataea right back to where they had been. So it reset the clock all the way back to that point. And when you look back at it, you know, in, in the century, more or less, after Thermopylae, Greece had found its glory. So much of the ancient Greece that we think about was made possible by the rush of confidence that came after defeat of Persia in the Persian War that was inspired by the grand last stand at Thermopylae. It was in that century that you get democracy. You get that sense of of people realising that rather than being ruled by kings, they should rule themselves. They should rule each other for each other. It was in that climate that you get Socrates and Plato and Aristotle because their civilization has evolved to, to such a pitch that philosophers can spend their time contemplating the meaning of life which is quite a feat I mean for for most people for most of the time just finding food and shelter and warmth are are the priorities but Greek civilization evolved to the point where people could actually sit aside thinking lofty thoughts like what does all of this mean and what is reality and in terms of thinking about that way in which the past doesn't repeat but it rhymes Perhaps as much as anything else, it's worth bearing in mind that all of that beauty, the rise of democracy and and the great thinking and thoughts of the philosophers, that fragile flower was all 
cradled. It was all happening against the backdrop of incessant internecine war. That was also happening all the time. On the one hand, you've got all this fragile wonder of philosophy and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the rest of them and the development of democracy and the and the understanding of the of the primacy and the sovereignty of the individual but in the background they're all just at each other's throats all the time that's so much the case in the present day because it's something to do with the nature of our species war is just never far away it's always there what's that line from is it is it in blood simple before man was war waited for him the ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner war's just always there and because of that propensity for destructive violence and that tendency to drift towards decadence where the younger generations who have inherited something wonderful because they've only inherited it and not had to build it in the aftermath of struggle, they become complacent. And it means ultimately that because of the constant, ever-present violence, nothing lovely lasts forever. And we're potentially looking at a situation like that now. But I'm always drawn... Here in, in Scotland, one of the national war memorials raised or... Uh, consecrated really after the First World War is is within Edinburgh Castle. There's a chapel that's set aside as, as part of Edinburgh Castle, and it, it it's there. It was it, it remembers all wars now, but it, it was put in place first of all to remember the dead of the First World War. And up on one wall, that's where I first encountered it. It's engraved, etched into the wall of the war memorial, and it's part of a funeral oration. Uh, that was recorded by Thucydides, Thucydides, the Athenian general. And within his writings, he recorded an oration uh, given at the funeral of another Athenian general called Pericles. Pericles was a great inspirational figure for his people, for the people of Athens, from 460, when he came to prominence, until his death in 429 of plague. There was an outbreak of plague. And... Thucydides recorded the the oration that was given at Pericles' funeral and it's words about For heroes have the whole earth for their tomb and in lands far from their own where the column with its epitaph declares it there is enshrined in every breast a record unwritten with no other tablet to preserve it except that of the heart. And I saw that on the wall of Edinburgh Castle and thought, well, extraordinary. And how long it's lasted. And there, you know, the words chosen to be etched into the wall of a memorial to the dead of the First World War come all the way from the time of ancient Greece. An historian on a mission, a legendary leader born into obscurity, spared by a lion, ever driving himself forward, seeking order from chaos, unifying almost the whole of the subcontinent, violence and slaughter leading to repentance and to live and let live. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, 
sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Podcasts production. Hey, that's new. (laughs) Great.